Glory to Jesus Christ, Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish presents Light of the East, a program revealing how the Eastern Catholic Churches have nourished the Roman Catholic Churches and today's world in profound ways through their history, traditions, mysteries, and spirituality. Hello, I am Father Thomas J. Loya, pastor of Annunciation of the Mother of God Byzantine Catholic Church in Homer Glen, Illinois, and this is the story of the Eastern Churches, an inspiring story of faith courage, intrigue, mystery, spirituality, dissension, and reconciliation. But most of all, this is an expression of a great experience of faith through our unique divine liturgy. Join with me now as we look toward the Light of the East. Light of the East is also supported by Eastern Christian Publications, where you can find the prayers of the Catholic Byzantine Daily Office at ecpubs.com and by easternchristianmedia.com, a broadband network for you to learn more about the Eastern Catholic Churches. That's easternchristianmedia.com, who are also producers of EWTN's Living Right with Dr. Ray Garendi. Glory to Jesus Christ. Welcome to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Loya. Once again, you're hearing our signature music for this period of the great fast of Lent by the waters of Babylon, a mournful psalm sung, proud to say, by the Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish Choir. I'm Father Thomas Loya, your host. Welcome again to Light of the East on once again another very special Sunday, the first Sunday of Lent in the Byzantine liturgical calendar, according to those churches that are on the Gregorian calendar. You see, there's basically two calendars. Many of you probably have heard of this. There is the Julian calendar, which is also called sometimes the old calendar. Then there's the new calendar, although they're both very old. <laughs> but the Gregorian calendar is the calendar that church has gone on since the 16th century under Pope Gregory. But some churches, especially in the East, Orthodox churches in particular, and some Eastern Catholic churches, have retained the old calendar. In other words, they're on the Julian calendar. And so they have Easter, as in one example, they have Easter at a different date. It usually comes later than those of us on the Gregorian calendar. But at the same time, many Eastern churches, mostly Eastern Catholic churches, have gone on the Gregorian calendar. And this was actually quite a big controversy over the years when the Eastern churches, some of those who did go on on the Gregorian calendar, when they made that switch, that was um, that was quite a controversy. In fact, it even resulted in uh, or contributed towards some schisms within the Eastern Catholic churches and the Eastern Orthodox churches. But most of the Eastern Catholic churches are on the Gregorian calendar. And so those who are, and especially if you are in the Byzantine, we're talking about the Byzantine churches, today is the first Sunday of Lent, which is also called the Sunday of Orthodoxy or the Sunday of Holy Images. There's a great classic book by Archimandrite Callistus Ware and Mother Mary. It's called The Lenten Trodion. It's translated from the original Greek. And it's classic because it was published back in 1977. I'm not even sure if it's in print anymore, but uh, maybe you can get it on eBay or something. But maybe it's still in print. I don't know. It, at the time, it was the publishers were Faber and Favor out of London and Boston. And again, it's 1977. And the first published in 1977. And then again in 1978. And again, it's called the Lenten Trodion. 
Now, I refer to this book because it is a real classic. You know, there's certain things sometimes you just can't improve upon. That's what makes them a classic, not just because they're old or out of print, but because you almost can't improve on them. And, you know, this book comes very, very close. It's something that, in fact, my copy is all full of, it's all dog-eared and worn and falling apart, but I still hold it together, duct tape and everything, because it is so good. It's a book about, that leads you through the season of Lent. In other words, each Sunday, the meaning of it with its themes and also the liturgical services and their texts and their scriptural references. So we're going to read a little bit from this classic book. And if you can get it, I highly recommend it. It's, again, it's called The Lenten Trillion by Archimandrite Callistus Ware and Mother Mary, 1977 or 1978, also from the Faber and Faber Publishing out of London and Boston. And the day before today, we celebrate in the Byzantine liturgical calendar during Lent, the Saturday in which we look at St. Theodore. Now, there's a specific reason. This is what uh, Archimandrite writes in his book, The Lenten Trodium. There's a specific reason why St. Theodore has come to be associated with the first week of Lent. According to the tradition recorded in the Synex Arian, and that's the kind of the, the daily the book for the kind of like the, the daily that gives you the background of each each day, you know, the saints and the themes of that day, the Synexarium. According to the Synexarium, the Emperor Julian the Apostate, now he reigned from 361, 363 AD, as part of his campaign against the Christians, attempted to defile their observance of the first week of Lent by ordering all the food for sale in the market of Constantinople to be sprinkled with blood from pagan sacrifices. And of course, Constantinople is modern day. Istanbul in Turkey. St. Theodore then appeared in a dream to Eudoxius, archbishop of the city, ordering him to warn his flock against buying anything from the market. Instead, so the saint told him, they should boil wheat, another word for that is koliva, and eat this alone. Now, in memory of this event, after the pre-sanctified liturgy on the first Friday, a canon of intercession is sung to St. Theodore, and a dish of koliva is blessed in his honor. Now, this koliva is almost like something like an oatmeal almost. But it's a traditional thing. We do do it in my church on this first Saturday in Lent. But quite apart from this, this historical association of the great martyr Theodore with the first week of the fast, it is also spiritually appropriate that he should be commemorated during these days. The great fast is a season of unseen warfare, of invisible martyrdom, when by our ascetic dying to sin, we seek to emulate the self-offering of the martyrs. That is why in addition to such commemorations as that of St. Theodore on the first Sunday, there are also regular hymns of the martyrs on all the weekdays of Lent. Their example has a special significance for us in our ascetical efforts during the great 40 days. So, again, the great tradition of St. Theodore in a vision, in a miracle. And we make this little dish, boiled wheat. They call it boiled wheat, but it's, it's well, it tastes similar. The best way I can describe it is something like oatmeal. And we serve that on Saturday. In the memory of this event, at the Presentine Liturgy on the first Friday, a canon of intercession is sung, and then this dish of Kaliva is blessed in this honor, in the honor of St. Theodore. But this emphasis of the aesthetical discipline is very, very significant. As this Lenten Trodian said, as, and I'm reading again from Archimandrite Clistus Ware's Lenten Trodian, also by Mother Mary as, as one of the co-authors, this classic book, which talks about St. Theodore, and emphasizes the martyrs is very significant because today in our day and age, and this is where we see the relevancy of the Eastern spirituality. One of the reasons I promote this program, of course, I'm the host of it, the purpose of it is to share the riches of the Eastern churches so that the church, the whole church will be enriched, but also our lives, the world. In other words, the Eastern churches have something very salient and relevant to offer the world today. 
And one of those things is the emphasis on asceticism, on martyrdom, on dying to self. We live in an age today where narcissism is just growing and growing, it seems. Entitlement, self-indulgence, it's all about me, the ego. And this is creating havoc in our culture. In fact, it's destroying culture in so many ways. Well, the antidote to that is dying to self, dying to our passions and our ego. In other words, the tyranny of these things, the power of these things, so they only have power over us. And as we die to ourselves, we actually rise to our real self. We find our real self in this process of dying. And one of those aspects of dying, one of the ways we do it, is through ascetical discipline. In other words, we kind of martyr ourselves by our strong ascetical fasting, our rigorous fasting. And also that helps us then to gain greater control over our passions. In other words, we're not so quick to be angry or to indulge in foods that we shouldn't or to think unkind thoughts. Any manner of control over the passions is what fasting helps us to accomplish. And so whenever we say no to an urging, we say no to any of the, I'm going to call it the tyranny of our passions, it is a way of dying. See, there's what's called white martyrdom. There's also blood martyrdom. Now, people also are shedding blood for their faith. In fact, there's more blood being shed in in this past century, in the beginning of this century, than it has been actually in the early part of the church's history when when we kind of associate martyrdom in the early centuries of the church. There's actually more blood shed now. There has been in the last several decades. And so there can be a blood martyrdom. There might even be more, even in our country of America. We hope not, but... If that's what we have to endure, we have to endure it. But there is the white martyrdom. It's the dying to our self, to that ego, the tyranny of our passions. And the, the Lenten rigors help us to do that, as well as putting before our eyes the great saints, the great ascetics, like St. Theodore and all the martyrs. So we continually invoke and mention the martyrs and the great ascetics during the Lenten season in the Byzantine church and through our liturgical prayer. Now, also, as I mentioned, following Saturday, of course, is Sunday. That's the day. And that is the Sunday of Orthodoxy, the Sunday of the true faith, the Sunday of holy images. Because these two concepts go together. It's very significant to realize that. And again, we'll look at a little bit of history with the help of this classic book, the Lenten Trodian. The sense of joy and thanksgiving, already evident on the side of St. Theodore, is still more apparent on the first Sunday in Lent when we celebrate the triumph of Orthodoxy. On this Sunday, the church commemorates the final ending of the iconoclast controversy and the definitive restoration of the holy icons to the churches by the Empress Theodora, acting as regent for her young son, Michael III. Now, this happened to take place on the first Sunday in Lent on March 11th, 843. Now, I was going to stop just right there for a moment and refer to the Seventh Ecumenical Council. There were seven great councils in the church before the first millennium of the church in the East, and the seventh of those councils is set aside by itself. It happened in 787 AD, and it is so for a very important reason. And once again, we kind of revisit that as sort of a reaffirmation of that when we have this Sunday of Orthodoxy in which we commemorate what happened in 843, you know, some years later. So the two of them, the final restoration of iconography kind of harkens back to that Seventh Ecumenical Council. Now, something very, very significant happened with these two events. That's why I'm kind of tying them together. And I'm going to talk more about these events and how they're tied together and the significance and relevancy of this for us today when I return. I'm Father Thomas Loyal on Light of the East.
Light of the East mission is Christianity's reunion. And to tell the story of the Eastern Lung of the Catholic Church, we need your support. In order to keep Light of the East on the air, you can make a donation now by going to ByzantineCatholic.com. That's ByzantineCatholic.com. Click on the radio button and then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright. Glory to Jesus Christ. Glory to Him forever. Hello, I am Father Thomas J. Loya with Katie Goulis for an Eastern Christian moment. The difference between what Pope John Paul II referred to as the two lungs of the church, East and West, is something like the difference between men and women. Men and women are both human, but they experience and express that same humanness in complementary ways through a fundamentally masculine perspective and a fundamentally feminine perspective. The Western lung of the church has a great genius for evangelizing, for moving out beyond itself to proclaim the gospel to the world. It is a strong sense of order, noble simplicity, reason, and a fundamentally vertical ecclesiology. The eastern lung of the church, like a beautiful queen, evangelizes by drawing people to herself through an overpowering beauty and mysticism. Church structure in the east is based upon a local ecclesiology. These differences are seen and expressed in the respect of liturgy, spirituality, art, architecture of both lungs of the church, east and west. To find out more about the eastern lung of the church, go to easternchristianmedia.com. You're listening to Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. The Tabor Life Institute, which is dedicated to the formation and education in the theology of the body. To find out more about the Tabor Life Institute, you can go to taborlife.org. That's taborlife.org. Especially if you're interested in conferences and retreats, in particular for youth, young adults, and also for those of you who speak Spanish. That's TaborLife.org. Welcome back to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Sloya. And again, you're hearing the music, our signature piece, the, By the Waters of Babylon, the beautiful, mournful song. Sung beautifully, if I may boast a bit. I know we're supposed to be humble during Lent, but I'll boast a little bit. I'm a pastor, can't help it. Boast about the fact that this is sung beautifully by my own parish choir. It's under the direction of Professor Timothy Woods, and it's in a CD, actually, called Theosis, the Theosis CD, that you hear about on this program. And we're singing about the Lenten season, in which this is the first Sunday. We mentioned yesterday we focused on St. Theodore. He has a great custom of the Kaliva, the boiled wheat but also the Sunday of Orthodoxy. And I mentioned that it ties together two events. One, the Seventh Ecumenical Council, which stands out in its, by itself in the Eastern churches, away from the other six councils. And also what happened in 843, the final restoration of icons, which was overcoming the iconoclast heresy. You know, I'm hearing this word iconoclast a lot today, and I don't know if people really understand where that came from. Well, all you have to do is listen to Light of the East, and you'll find out. You'll be smarter than all the rest. You'll find out, oh, iconoclast, I know what that means. I listen to Light of the East. Iconoclast actually means icon smasher or icon breaker. It even sounds like that, iconoclast. Sounds like something breaking or something, you know, it's a harsh word, iconoclast. And what it meant was that due to a wrong interpretation of Scripture, where God says you should not make any images and worship any graven images, a wrong and stream interpretation of that, it was a contributing factor to an understanding or thinking that we could not make images, any images of the saints, of Jesus Christ, the Virgin Mary. And this wrong thinking, this kind of class heresy, raged very violently, actually, for a few centuries, and the church had to fight it. 
Now, you might think to yourself, well, geez, it's about pictures. How can that be so significant to the point where they actually set aside in the Eastern churches the Seventh Ecumenical Council, which has to do with the correct teaching on icons? Why would this be? I mean, it's just paint. It's just pictures. Uh, but it's not just pictures. It's not just paint. It's actually an affirmation or a denial of the reality of the incarnation, the great mystery. In other words, the invisible God becomes visible by taking on human flesh, that which, that which he created, taking on his own creation while still remaining God. And in doing so, that now changes the quality of creation, infuses it with the presence of God, it elevates it, it sacramentalizes it. And all of life becomes our affirming that, seeing that, and affirming that, and participating in that one great mystery. And it determines how we look at and approach and interface with every aspect of life, especially the human person. It's what helps us to believe that bread and wine can in fact become truly, physically, the body, blood, soul, divinity of God, of Jesus Christ. How oil can be infused with the presence of the Holy Spirit or water. How touching and lighting a candle can actually make our prayer more intimate longer-lasting, more powerful, a prayer to God, to the Virgin Mary and the saints, how a statue, an image, a cross can make present to us in our hearts that person that it represents and elevate and intensify our prayer. It matters so much whether we can affirm and say that images can in fact be painted of Jesus Christ, the Virgin Mary, the angels, the saints, it matters. It makes all the difference in the world because it's a ratification of the one great mystery which determines how we see all of life, how we determine all of life. And so that's why the Eastern churches, in their wisdom, set apart these moments when there was a triumph over the true teaching of icons and of images. I mean, you can include statues as well, but the particular focus in the Eastern churches was iconography. It makes all the difference in the world. Everything comes from this one incarnational, sacramental worldview. It makes all the difference in the world. It helps us understand church teaching on the human person. It helps us to treat people the right way, the environment. It helps us to understand everything the right way. It helps us to see the right ordering of things and to live according to that order. So that's why icons are so important. One time someone said to me, well, you know, if you cover the walls of the church with icons and images, that's not really going to bring people to the church, is it? The answer is, actually, it can. It has that power. Now, that's not the only thing you do in a church or a parish. Obviously, you do all kinds of evangelical things to welcome people, to reach out, to spread the gospel. But there is something very, very powerful in and of itself of having the holy images floor to ceiling adorn a church wall. It sanctifies that church. Something actually happens because God does become present through those images, painted as they were through a strict discipline and following, in a sense, strict canon, so to speak, ways that we paint and portray the saints and the events because they're portraying theology. It's like words of the page on a, on a Bible. Lining color is revealing God. It's revelatory. It's revealing theology, and it draws us into it. So it has powers. Icons have been known to be miraculous. They're miraculous powers. That's why we venerate them. I'm going to read just a little bit more now, continue reading from Callistus Wares and Mother Mary's book, Lenten Trojan. Again, a classic. 
There is, however, not only a historical link between the first Sunday and the restoration of the icons, but also, as in the case of St. Theodore, a spiritual affinity. If orthodoxy triumphed in the epoch of the iconoclast controversy, it was because so many of the faithful were prepared to undergo exile, torture, and even death for the sake of the truth. The Feast of Orthodoxy is also a celebration in honor of the martyrs and confessors who struggled and suffered for the faith. Hence, its appropriateness for the season of Lent, when we are striving to imitate the martyrs by means of our ascetical self-denial. The fixing of the triumph of Orthodoxy on the first Sunday is therefore much more than the result of some chant historical conjunction. Yeah, it has this historical significance, just like the scriptures. But at the same time, there's something more to that. Now, the, the Trotian gives the text of a special office of orthodoxy, which is held at the end of Matins, or more commonly at the end of Divine Liturgy, on this Sunday. The office celebrates not only the restoration of the holy icons, but more generally the victory of the true faith over all heresies and errors. Now, here's why this Sunday is also called the Sunday of the true faith. Because in having the true understanding of icons, that we can, in fact, make images of Jesus Christ, the Virgin Mary, the angels, the saints, is also an affirmation, as I mentioned earlier, of the right faith, the right belief in the incarnation, the reality of the incarnation. Processions made with the holy icons, and th- after this, extracts are read from the Synodal Decree of the Seventh Ecumenical Council, as I mentioned, from 787 A.D. And then here's a characteristically Eastern part, kind of a fun part. <laughs> the Easterners, they really mean business about this stuff. They, this maybe wouldn't fly as much today. It's done in some churches, but... Then what happens is 60 anathemas are pronounced against various heretics dating from the 3rd to the 4th century. Yeah, anathemas, meaning we name them by name. These people, anathema, be upon them for their wrong teaching. But that's certainly not politically correct at all. But it is very Eastern and very ancient. Again, when it comes to the real faith, the Easterners, they didn't fool around. Remember the story of the great, holy, humble, pious St. Nicholas, who stalked across the floor at the Council of Nicaea and slapped Arius in the face because he was espousing false doctrine about Jesus Christ. So yeah, the Easterners, they don't fool around when it comes to the true faith. Then the eternal memory is sung in honor of the emperors, patriarchs, and fathers who defended the true faith. And many years is proclaimed in honor of our priests, rulers, and bishops. Before the triumph of orthodoxy came to be celebrated on the first Sunday, there was also on this day commemoration of Moses, Aaron, Samuel, and the prophets. Traces this more ancient observance can still be seen in the choice of epistle readings at the liturgy, which are from Hebrews chapter 11, and then the Alleluia verses appointed before the gospel. And that's Moses, which says, Moses and Aaron among his priests, and Samuel among them that call upon his name. So we've got an exciting day. In fact, what I do in my parish, and these things, although they're, they're ancient customs and have an ancient history to them, they're just as relevant and timely today as they ever were. That's the exciting thing about liturgy especially Eastern liturgy. It is timeless. It is relevant for all times. And one of the things we do in my church, we take all the children of my parish, which we're so proud to have at Annunciation Parish in Homer Glen, Illinois. They're precious. They're our greatest, most precious asset. And we take them before liturgy, we line them up, and we all give them icons to hold. And they hold them up high above their head, and they walk around as the choir sings the appropriate hymns of the day and this triumph of orthodoxy. So we already teach our children from very early on about their heritage, their artistic, liturgical, architectural heritage, which is a great treasure to the whole church and to the world. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East.
Thank you for listening. Next week, we will return to the light of the East. To find out more about Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish, visit our website, byzantinecatholic.com, where you will also find an archive of all of our programs. In order to continue this program with its mission of Christianity's reunion, we need your support with a donation. Any amount would be a blessing. Please make out a check to Light of the East Radio and send it to Light of the East 14610 Will Cook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois 60491. That's Light of the East 14610 Will Cook Road spelled W-I-L-L-C-O-O-K, Road, Homer Glen, Illinois. From the light of the east, a new dawn of unity is in sight. God bless you, go with God, and may God bless you and grant you many happy years. <laughs>